welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. The Gospel of John is one of those books that is just chock full with some of the most well-known and beloved stories from the ministry of Christ. For example, two weeks ago, we encountered the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. And Joel, or Jesus told this man, who was the teacher of Israel, that his physical birth wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that he was born Jewish to be saved. He needed to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And this week, we encounter the famous story of the woman at the well. In a lot of ways, she is a direct contrast to Nicodemus in this book, and intentionally so. Nicodemus was a man who was well-educated, influential, a teacher, largely considered moral, a Jew, and his conversation with Jesus ends without him being converted. This woman at the well, she is uneducated, a nobody. We don't get her name. We don't know who she is. Uh, she's immoral. She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And her conversation with Jesus ends with her being converted. And not just her being converted, but an entire village coming to faith. Both of them, both Nicodemus and this woman, demonstrate to us that they both needed to be born again. But only one was. And this is the story of the gospel. And today we're going to do something a little bit different as we walk through this passage I'm going to read a couple verses and expound upon them because I want you to see the tension of the story. This is a wonderful narrative passage, the back and forth between Jesus and this woman. And then at the end, I'm going to make some very, very quick applications for how do we then live in light of this conversation that Nicodemus, or sorry, that Jesus had with this woman. So if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to have them open throughout the service here because we are going to spend a lot of time uh, directly in this text. So beginning in verse 1, we see the setting of this story. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the rising popularity of Jesus, which was celebrated by John the Baptist we saw last week, is not celebrated by the Pharisees. With this added success, he now has added scrutiny and pressure in his public ministry. And so Jesus heads back to, uh, back to Galilee from Judea, and to get there, he goes through the uh, region known as Samaria. It is true 
that Jesus, like many Jews, went through that area. Some Jews who were really strict would add extra days of travel to avoid going, around, you know, going through the Samaritan uh, landmarks so that they would not become ritually unclean. And the text notes that Jesus had to. He had to go through Samaria. The word had in the Gospel of John that is used here normally carries with it the sense of a divine appointment. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with this woman at the well. This was God's hand throughout the process. It was no accident. This was an essential part of Christ's earthly ministry. It was recorded for a reason. So what's the big deal? Why is going through Samaria a big deal? Well, the Samaritans were a people who had both Jewish and Gentile roots. They were, to a large extent, considered half-breeds who were despised not just by the Jews, but they were also despised uh, by the Gentiles. And we should note that the Samaritans despised the Jews every bit as much as the Jews despised the Samaritans. They didn't like one another. In the history of Israel, when the kingdom after Solomon was split in two, and there were the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, eventually became what we know today as the Samaritans. And they had evil king after evil king. And they, in essence, started their own counterfeit religion. If you remember to the story of the kings, they built a golden calf to worship God and bow down before, and they eventually built their own temple in the city of Samaria. And that is where the term Samaritan comes from. Eventually, the Assyrians came in and conquered Samaria, destroyed the temple, and they took with them all of the wealthy and powerful Jews of that time, and they left behind the poor and the destitute, and they moved in Gentiles. Those two people groups, the left behind and the move-in Gentiles, bred or had children and grew up, and that is what we now have as the Samaritans. And we should note that the mixing that happened of the northern kingdom was not primarily a problem because of racial things. It was a problem because they blended religions. They left behind the true Jewish faith, and they blended it with pagan myths. And so Jesus is there in Samaria by divine appointment at a sacred well around noon, the hottest time of the day. And this is where the story picks up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So a Samaritan woman is at the well. You should note she's at the well all by herself in the middle of the day. Generally speaking, most women would go to the well either in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, and they would go together with other women for safety reasons. But this woman appears to be all alone in the world. She has no friends to accompany her to the well. She is a social outcast. And she comes during the slowest part of the day. So let me put it plainly. She wants to be left alone. She's doing these things on purpose. She doesn't want to interact with anybody at all. And I think we should sit on that point for a moment. Sin 
in all of its ugliness, in all of the death that it brings, breaks apart relationships. Sin both drives us inward and it drives us toward isolation. I've seen it countless times in ministry. Attendance at church wanes and wanes and wanes. And it's because there's a sin. And you're driven towards isolation. I know portrayals of this woman often paint her as a victim. That none of this is her fault. That she's merely the victim of the sins of her many husbands and the oppression of society. And there's certainly some truth there. She's certainly been sinned against. But the undercurrent under the discussion between her and Jesus is that she's also responsible for a lot of the decisions she's made that have led her to this point. She had sinned and contributed to the problems of her life. In other words, as sinners, we tend to respond to being sinned against by sinning more. It is truly a Christian thing to not respond to sin with sin. It's supernatural. And so this woman, who had been sinned against, and who had also sinned and bore the cultural shame of her guilt and sin, she is hiding from others because sin drives us towards isolation. It drives us to blame others, to hide, and to run away in our shame and our guilt, and to be threatened by any confrontation of that sin. Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she retorts, How is a Jewish man asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? There are a lot of cultural taboos that Jesus is breaking here. A one-on-one male and female interaction. A Jew versus a Samaritan. And her response has a strong, leave-me-alone type vibes to it. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be talking to me. She came alone and wanted to be left alone. And it was Jesus who approached her. And that is something we should also consider. Jesus had this really wonderful and strange way about him and where he could offend people at the drop of a hat and also reach out to those who were the most in need of it. He did both of those things. And we really do have to hold those things in tension. And we'll see more of the Jesus doubling down on offense in the coming chapters of John, where Jesus in John 6 and 8 has no-hold-bars brawling with the crowds in Jerusalem. And this has historically been a marker of the church, if you read church history at all. If you read anything about the culture wars between the early Christians and the the, uh, Roman pagans, the Christians were known for two things. They were known for fiercely standing for truth and opposing whatever evil was going on around them. And they were also known for caring for whatever that evil in society had cast people aside. They were known for both truth and love. And that is something we must all strive for, to be known as those who love and who won't compromise on truth. We must not pit the two against one another. But the discussion continues in verse 10. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, 
and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus, who asked the woman for a drink, is now telling her if that she really understood what was going on, she would be asking him for water. The tables have turned, and this woman, a lot like Nicodemus in John 3, doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. Like Nicodemus, she takes him literally. Like, Jesus, you're sitting there, you don't even have a jar to draw water out of the well. Where are you going to get this water? Jesus, of course, is speaking figuratively. Let me put it this way. God has designed into the world water to quench our thirst, to sustain us, to bring life, and all of that is intentionally meant to picture the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All of this universe testifies to the character of God. Every time you take a sip of water, it is telling you what Jesus is like. She says, how can you give me water? You don't even have anything from the well. How we often miss the greater meaning in life because we look at everything from purely naturalistic lenses. It's just water. It's not just water. It's a testimony to Christ. He's offering living water. Water that if you drink it, you will never truly be thirsty again. Water that will cause you to become a spring of living water that produces eternal life. What does that even mean? Much like being born again has a double meaning, so does the idea of living water. First, living water is a reference to water that acts like it's alive. It's moving. It's not stagnant water. It's not like when you go out to a pond in the middle of summer and there's all this scum and nastiness in it and algae. Living water, moving water is fresh. It's refreshing to drink. But the second part of the double meaning and the deeper meaning of living water is tied to the Old Testament prophecies, the coming of the Messiah. I can't give you all of them, but they're all over the Old Testament prophets. But here are some obvious ones. Jeremiah 2, 13. God speaking to his people. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What was Israel's sin? Their sin is that they rejected God, who was the fountain of life, and his water was actually going to satisfy them, and instead they tried to dig their own wells, and it didn't work. It didn't hold true water. Israel went again and again to anything and everything besides God to deal with their problems, and they were nothing more than broken cisterns, things that were impotent, couldn't heal. And I believe Jacob's well here in this story stands in that line, a sacred well that represents the Samaritan's sin and rejection of God. Jesus is literally standing by a broken cistern that can, yes, give you real or physical water, but can't really do anything. Couldn't really quench the thirst of that woman. 
Here's some more examples from the Old Testament. Speaking of the coming messianic age, Zechariah 14.8. Living water will flow out of Jerusalem. Isaiah 55, 1-2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? The coming of the Messiah was to mark a time where you could come and eat and be satisfied for free. Jesus is offering himself. He is that water because he is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things. He is the fountain of life. Later on in this book, he is the resurrection and the life. If you want life, you get it from Jesus. And if that were not enough, if you do receive this eternal life, you are united to the one who is the fountain of living water, and this causes you to become a spring of living water that wells up unto eternal life. This is the offer he makes to the woman. You can have this kind of water. And she looks at this man and says, are you greater than our father Jacob? The way she phrases it, she's implying no. Like, who do you think you are? Like, you're greater than Jacob. But the readers of John know, yes, he's very much greater than Jacob. So she appears to shift, and she asks for the water. But note why she asks for the water, so that she doesn't have to come to the well anymore. She can stay in her isolation. If you give me this water, I don't even have to come out here in the middle of the day anymore. The conversation continues, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. In classic Jesus fashion, he asks a question he already knows the answer to. I believe this is a hint of that Jesus often spoke in such a way to help people understand, even though he already had the answers. It was like God when he came down into the garden and he said to Adam, where are you? It's not like God didn't know where he was hiding. He was asking the question so that Adam would consider it. Later on, in John, Jesus will pray aloud in front of the tomb of Lazarus and he says these words, He said, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. Why did I have this verbal prayer? So that everyone could hear it. Like, I already know you're going to answer my prayer. This is what Jesus did. He speaks this way so that we might understand. So what is Jesus doing here in asking her for her husband when he knows she doesn't have one? He is asking her to admit her sin. She has had five husbands, and now she lives with a man who is not her husband. Lots of applications we can make from this, but I want to make this point because I run into this again and again in Christian circles. This means quite clearly biblically that living together and being sexually united together is not enough to constitute a marriage. That's what she's doing. Jesus says, it's not your husband. Any debates on this should be ended with this passage. But part of the reason she is a social outcast is this sin. The whole town knows about it. It doesn't excuse them for treating her poorly, but part of the reason she's an outcast is that she has contributed to the problem. 
And so Jesus points out her sin, displaying her greater need, and he is not seeking to condemn her because she, just like us, stands condemned outside of Christ. Christ did not come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned, was already trapped in sin. He is calling her, he is asking these questions because repenting of your sin is essential to following Jesus. Jesus was a master at getting to the heart of the problem, the central sin that was keeping someone from God. And at that point, her sin is exposed, and she faces a choice that we all face. We can either run to Christ, or we can run away from him. We can either find mercy in Christ, or we can claim someone's being judgmental. I can tell you which one of those is more likely to happen in our age. But Jesus is offering forgiveness and freedom. This is the thirst he wants to quench. So upon having her sin exposed, this one who has tried to avoid everything by saying she has no husband, she pulls a classic move and she tries to distract Jesus. Verses 19 through 23. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus answered her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. She doesn't want to talk about her sin, and I can't really blame her. And so what she does here is she basically gives Jesus a test question, introduces a theological controversy. At the heart of the separation between the Jews and the Samaritans was not race. I've read so many commentaries that make this all about race. It's not about race. Racial categories like we think about, didn't get introduced until the 15 and 1600s. They simply did not think that way. Rather, they thought ethnically, which was far more about customs, practices, and theological beliefs. So we need to be careful here as we look at this text. Now, can we make application from this text to current problems in racial relations? Yes, of course we can. But it's not primarily what's going on here. The woman calls Jesus a prophet, But she doesn't wholly seem convinced because she asks him a question. Where are we to primarily worship God? This was the dividing line between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is why they hated each other. One worshipped on one mountain, the other worshipped on the other mountain. And Jesus being a Jew, this woman is really asking the question to see if he really is a prophet and if she really can believe him. Because the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they only believed that there was one more prophet to come. So she's trying to find out if this is the one prophet who was to come. And so the Samaritans had built their idolatrous worship and temple on Mount Gerizim. And for them, this was the proper place of worship. But for Jews, it was the temple in Jerusalem. And I want you to note Jesus' response. In no way does he affirm the Samaritan religion. 
In no way does he say, well, there's lots of different paths to God. Instead, he says, the Jews were right. He says, you worship what you don't know. In other words, you don't even know what you're doing. You're wrong. It's not very nice. He then affirms that the Jews are correct. We worship what we know. Salvation, he says, comes from the Jews. In the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews were correct and the Samaritans were wrong. The heresy of Mount Gerizim and the Samaritan religion were wrong. They were paths to hell. Jesus was not a uh, universalist. And just as she has to come to repent of her immoral actions, she also has to abandon her false beliefs. But Jesus gives more than just that. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Jews were right, but Jesus says the time has now come where the where doesn't matter anymore. Jesus is actually the true temple, as we saw in John 2. Jesus is, God is now looking for true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that when I worship, it's just really full of emotion? That's what it means to worship in the spirit. No, it's not really what Jesus is getting at here. You'll notice in the ESV translation, they get this right. There's only one in, in spirit and truth. Those two words, spirit, truth, are meant to be seen together, not as two contrasting uh, categories. This is not primarily a call to lively or emotional worship. It doesn't exclude that either. It's just not what Jesus is talking about. Spirit and truth mean a God-centered worship that flows from those who are spiritual, those who are of the Spirit, those who have been born again by the Spirit. To worship in spirit and truth is, as Carson writes, those who worship him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy on the basis of God's incarnate self-revelation, Christ Jesus himself. To worship in spirit and truth means that we worship the true Messiah. In other words, content matters. So Jesus now makes an offer to the woman, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He has corrected her sin, he's corrected her theology. Will she recoil? She speaks of knowing of the coming of the Messiah. And unlike with Nicodemus, Jesus tells this woman plainly, I'm the Messiah. It's me. I'm the one you've been looking for. What you need is me. I am the water. I am the one you need to worship. I think Jesus' openness to this unnamed Samaritan woman is rather breathtaking. He just lays it all out there. Continues it in verse 27. Or the story continues. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. 
Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. I want you to note the dramatic change in this woman because now she gets it. She went to the well with her jar to get water in the middle of the day all by herself. Jesus offers to quench her thirst forever and it is no small thing that in verse 28 John records that she left the water jar behind. She didn't need it anymore. She came to the well for physical water and she leaves being filled with spiritual water. She came in the middle of the day to be left alone as a social outcast and she runs into the town and tells everyone about Jesus. Like the whole town. She's no longer scared of what people think about her. She's no longer living in isolation. She is filled so much with that living water that she now has living water flowing out of her. This is what a genuine encounter with Jesus looks like. I was one way before I met him. Now I'm a different way. My sin is forgiven. I no longer hide in shame. I no longer isolate myself. I even open myself up to be hurt and misunderstood by others so that they might hear the gospel. Jesus has that kind of power to change people. Not just back then, but even today. And we read then that the whole town believes through the testimony of one woman, through one life being changed. Again, I want to stress this. We so often just underestimate the power of God to save people. One person. It took one. And so then Jesus says this to the disciples. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, Christianity in our culture today has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity is not in decline because it is not true or it is not powerful. Rather, what the American church has done has watered down the gospel message of Jesus Christ with a million qualifications. And we have remained silent when we should have spoken clearly and boldly. The fields are ripe, but we are scared to speak. We are scared of the harvest. We live in doubt and unbelief. God has people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are waiting to hear the good news, just like this woman. The power of the gospel is not too small or too little to save the lost. It is not too small to turn your life around, and it is not too weak to save your family. But you have got to leave the water pot behind. You have to leave the water pot behind. You have to be more like this woman and less like Nicodemus. It requires a humility and a repentance and a faith. This is a wonderful story. And it is beloved for a reason. How should we apply it? I want to give you five quick applications. Then we should be out of here by 3 p.m. First, we must learn to balance truth and love. Sometimes we can speak truth with no concern for others, or we can speak truth out of frustration and anger. That's not good. Sometimes we can remain silent 
in the name of keeping doors open or thinking that keeping silent is loving. Jesus had this wonderful way about him of holding both of those things. And it's really hard to live up to that, that balance he had. But we should note that truth and love are not at odds with one another. We must speak truthfully, and when we do so, it must be motivated by love and not winning an argument. But in an age where we are manipulated in the name of love to compromise truth again and again, we must remember that compromising or watering down the truth is never loving. Truth and love go hand in hand. Second, don't let your sin drive you to isolation. Don't be like the woman before she met Jesus, avoiding one another because of sin. Instead, deal with your sin, confess it, forsake it, and find solace in the work of Christ. Rejoice over the provision God has made for you. Your sin is gone. If you are in Christ today, you still sin, yes, but your sin and guilt are gone. You can live in joy and surety. I'm sure that woman was tempted to run away when Jesus mentioned her husbands. But she remained. Third, stop going to broken cisterns or broken wells expecting to be healed and satisfied. Our sin, our main sin, is that we have in countless ways tried to fix ourselves without God. We have tried to satisfy ourselves with idols and trinkets, with immorality and selfishness. And then we wonder why we're so miserable. Christ alone is the living water that really satisfies. Stop going to broken down wells. Fourth, we should have the same heart that Christ has here for those who are on the margins. Jesus had at least two different distinct voices that he used. And he had a tremendous advantage because he knew people's hearts, and we can't see that. But he had one voice for those who were proud in their sin and who would not admit it. To those people, Jesus was often very brash and even insulting. He spoke with fire and directness. You don't believe me? Come back for John 6 and 8. But to those who knew their sin and who were suffering over shame and guilt, he spoke softly and with mercy. One of my elders encouraged me to ask this question, so I'm going to do it. Look around you. Who are we missing from CBC? Who are on the margins of our church? Who may be struggling with discouragement and isolation because of their sin or just living in a fallen world? The church should seek to reach out to those people, as Christ has done for us. And fifth and finally, the fields are indeed ripe. Go into the world and share Christ. All she did was go into the town and share her testimony, and people got saved. You don't have to be a super-duper theologian to share Christ. We live in an age weighed down with despair and hopelessness. And people are waiting for good news, and we have it. Share it with them, and trust the results to God. We are the church. We have a job to do, to tell the nations that their Lord has come, 
Their Lord has died for their sins. Their Lord has risen. Their Lord reigns at the right hand of the Father over everything. And their Lord is coming back. And until that day, he has an offer of forgiveness out to everyone. That is our charge. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise and thank you for the good news of the mercy given to us by Christ Jesus. We thank you that our sins are indeed forgiven. We thank you that the gospel is true living water that can save us, that can change us, and that can change entire cities. Lord, it is my earnest heart's desire that St. Paul, Minneapolis, Roseville would be a city like that one in Samaria. That many would come to faith. That many would rush to Christ and confess his goodness and believe and repent of their sins. Lord, I ask that Christ Bible Church might be a part of that. That we might go forward in confidence, sharing the good news of eternal life through Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.